0: We'll just finish this book that if I see you nodding, that's all right. I'm just kidding. Maybe. (laughs) All right. Genesis chapter 4. Let's read verse 25 and 26, and then we'll just see what the Lord allows us to get through tonight. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bare a son, and she called his name Seth. There's hope again. Look at that. We talked about this last week. This should bring us joy. If we ended off this chapter and verse 24, we would be a miserable uh, people. And there would be no hope because chapter 4 up to verse 24 is nothing but showing the lineage of evil, wicked men. It shows the the depth of how far sin will go. It shows the, the reach of how far sin will go to engulf all that it can. Sin itself is like not just a flame, but it is a wildfire itself. It is a wicked thing. It is a terrible thing. It is a a damning thing. It is a thing that will engulf all things before it. And this is what has happened to several generations now from Cain. They have gone the way of Cain. And to go the way of Cain is the way of unfaithfulness. It is the way of unrighteousness. It is the way of ungodliness. It is the way of which we see in our world today. It is the broad way as Jesus referred to. It is the way that leads to death and destruction. Now, When Seth comes along, it reminds us that there is still a remnant. It reminds us that there is still a way. It reminds us that there is still a narrow way. It reminds us that there is still one way, and that is the way of faith. It it reminds us once more with Seth coming and verse 26 coming, that they call upon the name of the Lord once more, that without faith it is impossible to please God. Impossible. This is why the Bible talks about in the Psalms about how you could offer thousands of bulls and rams and goats, God says, I don't want that. That ain't going to satisfy. There needs to be faith. Faith in what? Not faith in the blood of bulls and goats, but faith in the precious blood of the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world, who was promised and prophesied in Genesis 3, Who is seen all throughout the Scripture, preached throughout the Scripture, and one day is coming again. And as we see in Revelation, this sort of beautiful bookend to Genesis, that He is the the one who has conquered, the one who will conquer, and it's as if it is already done in God's eyes and in God's book, because it is. Now, as we get into this, we see that they call his name Seth. She said, for God, said she, hath appointed me another seed instead of Abel, whom Cain slew. Eve's attitude has changed. She now goes and sees that the child is not something that she has brought forth, but something and someone that has been formed and fashioned in her womb by the hand of God Himself who has made Seth for a reason. It is going to be Seth who is the, going to be the one that the lineage will carry through ultimately the Christ, but as well, Seth will be used to do something very important in that day. Something that we need today as well. And that is to bring people back to the place where we call upon the name of the Lord. We often talk about past generations, how, how it used to be, how it used to be. We talk about future, how it's going, where it could go either good, bad, or ugly, and and probably some of of all three. But nevertheless, what Seth does is he gives us hope that it doesn't matter past, present, future, whatever, right now, today, we have the opportunity to call upon the name of the Lord. And we either will or we won't. And, And here's what we get to. It says to Seth then, to him also there was born a son, and he called his name Enos. Then began men to call upon the name of the Lord. This is where we get to tonight. We see that worship to the Lord is restored. It is something that should never be lost. If we understand what revival really is, it is a restoration of worship. It is not a drumming up of emotions, nor is it just a time to set aside to have some meetings, get some extra preaching and and give some extra money to a guy who you'll hear a few nights and he'll disappear and he might come back in a couple years. That's not what revival is. Revival is a time where the worship of God is restored. Now, this is incredibly important for us to understand here. It says, "...then..." Began men to call upon the name of the Lord. There was a time beforehand, before this, when clearly that they were calling upon his name. They began to call upon his name once more is the idea. Who was doing it beforehand? It was Abel. Abel was there. Abel was there praising the Lord, worshiping the Lord, who knew the Lord, who walked and pleased God by faith. It had been lost in the generations of Cain, seven generations, even getting down to Lamech, who's taking a second wife and being a murderer. so we find that the issues there, how sin has gone. And what does sin do? Sin is the opposite of worshiping God. Sin is the opposite of calling upon the name of the Lord. Sin, if anything, is a, a betrayal of the name of the Lord. It is a taking the name of the Lord in vain. It is a cursing of the name of the Lord. So what is the name of the Lord? And this is what we're going to look at here. Scraggy, excuse me. First of all, uh, uh, the commentators here give a, a great little section on this. The name of God signifies, in general, the whole nature of God by which He attests His personal presence and the relation to which He has entered with man. The divine self manifestation. It is pause. It is Him revealing Himself. He reveals Himself by His name. When we see the Lord, this is the first time we find Jehovah. This is the one who is all knowing, all powerful, all present, who rules over all of creation. This is the Lord God. As we remember, he's already given us his name several times throughout this book already. We find it opens up uh, Genesis 1, 1, right? In the beginning, God. That's who it is. That's the object of the book. That's the object of the sentence. The verb is created. Who created? The object. The the person, God, He does this. This is His work. This is His book. This is His revelation. Because what is the Bible ultimately? What is creation? It is to point us to the revealing of the Lord. But something is far greater than creation. Something is far greater than the mountains and the leaves and the trees and, and the animals and all the beauty of this world. What reveals God far greater? Certainly this Bible doesn't. Absolutely. But what even more so? Christ Himself. Jesus Christ is the revelation of God. In the beginning was the Word. He is the Logos. He is the One who reveals who God is to us. He perfectly represents God because He's God, and He perfectly represents man as man because He is man. The God-man. This is who was promised. This, I believe, is what is pictured in this idea that men began to call upon the name of the Lord when we see this. They are praising not just the name, not just a statue, because there's not a statue. This is not just a, a name on a, on a pedestal. This is, this is who God is. The name is important here. And here the commentator continues and he talks about this. He says, this is the whole of that revealed side of the divine nature which is uh, turned towards man. We have here an account of the commencement of that worship of God which consists in prayer, praise, thanksgiving, or the acknowledgement and celebration of the mercy and help of Jehovah. While the family of Canaanites, by the erection of a city and the invention of the development of worldly arts and business, were laying the foundation for the kingdom of this world, the family of the Sethites began by united invocation of the name of God by grace to found and to erect the kingdom of God. Here we find a stark difference between the two lineages, don't we? We find the Canaanites and what do they do? They do what we're going to find in Genesis chapter 11, where the first Babylonians, if you will, at the Tower of Babel, what do they do? They say, we're going to make us a name. We're going to build us a place. We're, we're going to do our own thing. It is self-worship. What is self-worship? It's what the Bible would call idolatry. Anything that does not give uh, all glory and, and, and praise and honor to God is idolatry. What is sin? Sin is idolatry. What, what about adultery? Is, is that just adultery? Is it adultery and idolatry? It's idolatry because you're worshiping yourself in that moment. And you're worshiping another you worshiping flesh, right? So anything that goes against the Bible, ultimately it comes down to this. It is an idol, an idol of one's heart. That is chapter 4. But when we get to here, Seth and to his lineage, what do we find? They call upon the name of the Lord. This is the purpose of man. This is the goal of man. This is to the glory of God. This is Praising Him for who He is, and this is recognizing that we don't have our own kingdom to build, but rather there is an invisible kingdom that will one day be a visible kingdom. That is the kingdom of God. It is the work of God. It is that God is using men like Seth, one day Noah, one day Abraham, and many other imperfect, sinful people who simply put their trust in Him. That's who God uses. That's what God does to build His kingdom, to uh, to display his kingdom and to preach his kingdom, hold your place here in Genesis. Turn with me to Psalm chapter seven for a moment. Psalm chapter seven. I want us to look at what this means about a name. We've talked about this before, and a name used to really mean something, right? And not just it's who you go by or what your name might be, whether it's a, a nickname or your full name, whatever it might be, right? But your name used to represent your character. Now for God, His very name does represent His character. It is His character. It is all of His divine attributes. So when we see uh, the the Lord, the Lord God, this is important for us to note because this is not just a name, but this is God saying, this is who I am and who is He? He is I am. He is the self-existing One, the everlasting One, the One who is from everlasting, everlasting. The One who holds eternity in His hand. The One who knows all things. The One who is... Sovereign over all things. The one who has yet uh, humbled himself in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ to come to this world that rejected Him. Right? Think about who God is. That is His name. Psalm chapter 7, verse 17. psalm psalmist says, I will praise the Lord according to His righteousness. Not our own. According to His righteousness. Why do we praise God? Because we're righteous? No, because He's righteous. Now look at this. And we'll sing praise to the name of the Lord Most High. It's unnecessary for the author here to put Most High because there's only one Lord. There's only one capital Lord. There's only one Lord God. There's only one Jehovah. There's only one sovereign uh, Lord, and that is Him. And He is the Most High because there is none that can to Him. There is none that can come near to Him. So He says, I will praise the name of the Lord. That's interesting to note, because what is His name? It is His divine attributes, character, works, person. It is who He is. So the psalmist doesn't say, I will praise the Lord for the great things He has done. No. His name wraps up not just what He has done, but the very essence of who He is. Then look at Psalm 8 here. O Lord, our Lord. That's, that's a message in of itself. There is only one Lord, but notice this. He is not just the the providential Lord, but He is the personal Lord. Our Lord. This is not just the God who created all things, but He is the one that sustains your very breath right now. He is the one that thinks many thoughts to you. And He's got a lot to think about, doesn't He? He's got all of time and eternity to think about, and yet He thinks of you. He knows the very hairs upon your head. He knows your heartaches. He knows your victories, your triumphs. He knows your defeats. He knows even the wicked pride and idolatry that you might even have within you even now in this moment. Yet his thoughts are still many. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. There's none like it. Is there a name like Jesus? Is there anything like him? There's just something about that name, right? it should bring us to this place where we see that there is none like God because there is no other God. Who is like Him? Who has known His thoughts? Who has given Him advice? Who has given Him counsel? None. Who has set Thy glory above the heavens? What is His glory? His glory is His attributes. His name is representing His character. This is who He is. It is far above the heavens. Meaning you could go on and on and on. And and If we understand this, here in this world, we're about, y'all see the tip of that pen? Y'all see it? Now look at the rest of this. That's us. Now look around the rest of the room. Now that's really us. And look beyond the room and go outside of these walls. And we're still just that. And you're somewhere right there. His glory goes far beyond all comprehension. As beautiful and as wonderful as it is to see some of the the satellite images of the universe, to think that as far as it keeps going, God's glory is even above all that. We can never go high enough. We can never praise Him high enough. We can never lift His name high enough. You can never praise the Lord. The psalmist continues, in verse 2, Out of the mouth of babes and sucklings hast thou ordained strength because of thine enemies, thou hast, that, that thou mightest still the enemy and the avenger. When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained. What is man that thou art mindful of him? And the son of man that thou visitest him? For thou hast made him a little lower than the angels, thou hast crowned him with glory and honor. Thou hast made him to have dominion over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, yea, and the beasts of the field, the fowl of the air, the fish of the sea, and whatsoever passeth through the paths of the seas. Remember, he gave that to man. Not to anyone or anything else. And then look at verse 9. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. We need to have such a wonder once more. We need to have such a praise once more when we see what it means to call upon the name of the Lord. Scroggy writes, the reestablishment of religious worship which Cain and his line had abandoned, or that they had separated themselves from the ungodly around them, but the formation of a distinct religious community or, if you will, some rudimentary form of a church. That's what church means. It is called out. Here they are separated. While they are relatives They are not of the same blood, are they? They might be physically. They might have the same genetic makeup. They might even look alike. They might even talk alike. But they do not worship the same God. Cain and his lineage worships the God of themselves. They have made themselves gods. They have worshipped themselves as God. The idea of what Cain does is one of pushing himself up to the place of God to kill, to murder, to slay his own brother. Here's Seth and his descendants. What do they do? They call upon the Lord. It says, These ideas are so closely related to be, that, as to be virtually inseparable. This action on the part of Seth's posterity reveals their awareness of the necessity of uncompromising attitude towards irreligion and devotion to the revelation of the Lord which they had received. That idea of this proper attitude with worship Your attitude is something that you can control. It's something that you get to choose what kind of attitude you have when you come to church, when you approach your Bible reading, when you approach prayer. Attitude really is, at the end of the day, it is not only your choice, but it is going to matter into the outcome of what you get out of this. If you approach prayer thinking that God owes you something, not a good, good way to start If you approach God's Word, when you go to read it and you go, well, let me see how many chapters I can say I read, get through it, okay, I did it, That's done. You've missed it. If you come to church, the same reason, you've missed it. What's the idea here? Men begin to call upon the Lord. Why? Because they see God's glory. They see who He is. He has revealed Himself to His people because that's who God is. That's what God desires to do. He desires to reveal Himself. Why? So that we can know Him. Not just so that He could have robots or anything like that. If He wanted that, He could have made that. He made men with this choice to choose to serve the Lord to know God. And He made us with the ability to know God. He's revealed Himself to us and now that we can freely call upon His name. We are to be devoted to God's glory. But notice this. What we're finding here is the establishment of a biblical, godly home. And where does it start? It starts with the husband and the father. As it should have in the garden. Where Adam failed, Seth is looking to bring it back to a revival place of calling upon God as a family. What one generation does or accepts or promotes, another one maybe doesn't, and then that one maybe begins to neglect it, and the next one neglect it even more, and the next one just totally forgets it and now that is what it had happened with Cain and his generation, but now here we have the opposite. We have godly homes starting, but where does a godly home begin in the godly heart? If Seth doesn't have this, I don't know that Enos will. It begins with one man who says, we will call upon the name of the Lord. We will call upon God. We will trust Him. It reminds us much of the words of Joshua. right? As for me and my house, we shall serve the Lord. It is this understanding that this is who God is and God is God alone and I will serve Him regardless of what my cousins will do, regardless of what Cain and his descendants will do, regardless of what the world might say, regardless of what my flesh may say, regardless of what might feel good, that we will call upon the name of God. To call upon the name of the Lord. It is this one of, of faith, trust, dependence. It is devotion worship. Not just because you want things from God, but because you want God. Fellowship. What is the goal here of the Bible? It is to reconcile us back to a place where we can meet with God face to face. You ever thought about that? There in the garden, what could man do? Perfectly and freely walk with God in a way that you and I know little of. Sin is what drives man from the garden. Sin is what drives man from God. But what do we have at the end of Revelation? We have those who have known the Lord Jesus Christ who may now freely see Him, fellowship with Him, uh, talk with Him, and do so forever and forever without another chance of the curse. As a matter of fact, it says, and there will be no curse there. That is our great hope. And that is the thrust of the Bible that God is redeeming and reconciling people unto himself by his blood, through faith, that they would trust in his promise, in his provision. We find as well that this is the direction of which we must go. What should a church be built on? Calling upon the name of the Lord? What should your home be built on? Calling upon the name of the Lord? What should your job life look like? Calling upon the name of the Lord? What should your prayer life look like? Calling upon the name of the Lord. Your devotion life. Your your, your reading life. Everything. Your giving. Everything. It is to know God. Life is meant to be lived with real faith and real worship. Even Cain could fake that. But yet Cain was still a murderer. What we've got to understand is today is that we need a genuine faith. Not a faith that was inherited from mom, dad, grandma, grandpa. Not a faith of what we used to have and we can't have no more. But a real faith. Because we'll never have real worship unless we have real faith. Unless you have real dependence upon God, you'll never have this devotion to God. Unless you are trusting Him for all things, you'll never be free to lift up your hands and praise the Lord or to say hallelujah or amen. You'll, you'll never be free to do so unless your heart is genuinely walking with the Lord. This is what we're going to see. There's going to be certain people along this new lineage, this lineage of faith, that are literally, as we're going to see in chapter 5, walk with God. And they're able to do so freely because of who God is. And they're able to do so because there's a freedom with walking with the Lord that it, it frees us up to live for Him regardless of what the world may do or, or say, regardless of what others may think, regardless of what even our sinful flesh may desire. That we can genuinely know Him. This is the foundation of the heart of man. If you want a heart that walks with God, that knows God, this is where it begins. Call upon His name. How about your home? It must be that as well. But it won't happen until we have fathers and husbands who will be willing to do so. I grew up, and, and my mom... was was a godly woman, especially for dealing with such an ungodly husband. she brought me to church and she taught me what that meant. But things changed when my dad trusted Christ and God saved him. Things changed for the better because then it was He who led the home as it was meant to. It was He who spoke and led of spiritual things. He who said, we're going to serve the Lord. That's a difference maker. I thank God for godly mamas, but I can tell you this. You look at statistics today. The reason why we've seen so many issues today in different communities, whether whether it's rural Appalachian communities, black inner city communities, regardless, you, you find it. What you find is this. Mothers and fathers who are gone. Dads who are out of the home. There's not just little to no church in their life, but there's no Christ being preached, served, lived, worshiped. They don't know what it means to call upon the name of the Lord. So why should we think that they're going to somehow turn out okay? Why should we think that they're not going to be turned to the world of drugs and alcohol and violence and and sexual debauchery? Why should we be surprised by that? We need godly men, we need godly women, we need godly homes. Before we ever have a godly home, we need to have godly hearts. And as we've talked about this, this is the foundation of a, not just a home, but of society. As we've talked about, as the home goes, goes society. This is what we've seen in our own nation. And it's happened in less than 50 years. And it's gone from things were good to... Whoosh. Now we don't want a biblical home anymore. Now the idea of a biblical home is not just foreign to our minds, but it is now being uh, just, ag- the world's against it. It's not just they don't know what it means, but they don't want what it looks like. Because it looks like what God has ordained and desires. Anyone or anything that is not founded upon calling upon the Lord will be faulty, it will have a faulty foundation. Your heart, your home, this church, any church. In a society. This separates the two lineages, but it also divides up today's world in church, homes, families. Now as we get into this, we see this great importance. I love the way that chapter 4 ends because it gives us hope. And now God, what He does in chapter 5 is He begins to give us a lineage of those who call upon the name of the Lord. As we've talked about, is this... a uh, a phone book of all the people that ever lived? No. This is telling us those who lived and followed God because where is this going? This is taking us to the one who is going to crush the head of the serpent. This is pointing to Christ. This is pointing to something far greater. Now, this genealogy is important here. He begins at verses 1-3. through We see sort of the prologue of the faithful lineage. It begins with this. This is the book of generations of Adam. In the day that God created man... In the likeness of God made He Him. Male and female created He them and blessed them and called their name Adam in the day when they were created. And Adam lived in 130 years and beget a son in his own likeness after his image and called his name Seth. So, pause there. We at least know this. From the time of Adam's creation to the time of Seth is 130 years. How long was he in the garden? I don't know. How long until he had Cain and Abel? I don't know. And we ain't got to know. But God gives us insight. Think about this. 130 years. And that's when men begin to call upon the name of the Lord once more. We often get hopeless for revivals. We often get hopeless because there's been generations or all of these issues. God still can. It takes one generation to say, we'll call upon the name of the Lord. It takes one man, one woman, one home, one church. Look at this here. Hamilton writes, In the description of each generation, the same literary structure followed. And this is sort of helpful as we go through chapter 5. How many of y'all love to read the genealogies in the Old Testament? Go ahead. A <laughs> couple of you, right? If we're honest, some of us, you struggle with it because you go, why am I reading this? What does this matter for? It matters a lot, right? Now, it gets tough when you get into maybe Leviticus or you get into Kings and things like that. But you know something. If we read genealogies of this, God is showing us either a group of people that followed the Lord or a group of people that did not follow the Lord. And in this group, there's going to be a lineage that's going all the way to who? To Christ. Genealogies then can become exciting because what we find is this. God always has a remnant. God always has a people that are following Him, that are calling upon His name. And God is always working about the redemption and reconciliation of sinners. So praise God for genealogies, right? Now, let's look at this. Hamilton continues. This is sort of the way that chapter 5 is going to be structured. Each one is going to be the age of the father at the birth of the firstborn, the name of the firstborn, how many years the father lived after the birth of this son, a reference to the fathering of other children and the father's total lifespan. The name of Adam's fathering of, of children, oh, excuse me, the, the name of Adam's uh, progeny are Seth, Enosh, Kenan, Mahal, Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, and Noah. That's a different Lamech. The genealogical data about Noah are only partially given in verses verse 32 and are not completed until chapter 9, 28 through 29. And we'll see why. The next few chapters, from 5 through about 11, are going to be very important. It's going to be showing us the preparation for God calling out Abraham. That's going to be important because then is going to set forth the people and nation of Israel. During this time, this is sort of a, a different dispensation, if you will. We're getting ready to get into some really mighty things, how God is going to call out a people who were not a people, how God is going to call them out from the world and unto himself. And ultimately, through those people, Christ will come to redeem not just those people, but whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord. Notice that. We see that phrase once more. Calling upon the name of the Lord. Chapter 4, verse 26, Then men, uh, then, uh, then began men to call upon the name of the Lord. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. What do we find here? We find the very root of salvation. We find the whole of what is the Christian life. If it continues on, we see how genealogy matters because genealogy also shows us that God's character of redeeming and reconciling. It shows the character of man, what these men were like, and we'll get into some specific men that God gives some extra details about. And we'll see God's providential plan to bring about the Messiah. I like how McGee puts it here. He says, there are these two books as we are already seeing that there are two lines, two seeds, and they are against each other. The struggle is going to be long between the line of Satan, the line of Christ, the accepted line, the line which we are following now Is the line through Seth, and it is through the line that Christ will ultimately come. Scroggy writes, This indicates again the object of the Bible record, namely to spotlight those events only which disclose the redeeming purpose of God. What is this? This whole book. It is to reveal not just God's character, but to reveal the redeeming purpose of God, which is His grace to be given to people to save souls so that His glory would be displayed for all people. What do you think eternity looks like? It is a a city of grace. It is a city of glory where His glory is shown throughout all of the new heavens and the new earth. Scroggie continues, he says, to spotlight those events only which disclose the redeeming purpose of God and trace its progress. And in pursuance of this object, the light is focused on the seventh from Adam in each of the two lines. The seventh in Cain's line was Lamech. A polygamist and murderer, and the seventh and seventh line was Enoch, of whom it is said that he pleased God. He walked with God, right? The distinction is clean cut, and the lines move in opposite direction. Now, notice this phrase, though. It says uh, in verse number three, "And Adam lived hundred and thirty years, and begat a son in his own likeness." This phrase is used here. What is the likeness of Adam? We remember that Adam had been made, God said that he made man after his, in his own image and after his own likeness, right? We see the many traits and things of what that means for mankind as a whole, but specifically that of Adam. But now it says Adam has a son after his own likeness, after his image, and called his name Seth. Physically speaking, genetically, he's going to look like his parents. When you see a new baby come into the world, everyone always asks, well, who do you think he looks like? Right? And then there's arguments. He looks like mom. He looks like dad. How about he looks like both of them? (laughs) He's got both of them's DNA, genetics in it. It's the makeup of both. Nevertheless, regardless of who they favor, we find that Seth here does much more than look like his dad physically. He looks like his dad spiritually. When Seth is born, Seth is not born perfect. Seth, is born, and when He's born, what does He look like being made in the image and likeness of His Father? He looks an awful lot like Romans 5. When Adam now brings forth lineage, what do they look like? They are sinful, and they are dying from the moment they are alive. They are going to die. Why? Because of sin. They are going to live a life of sin. Even this lineage of faith, yet by faith they will be saved. By faith, there will be forgiveness. By faith, they will be able to please God. The physically and spiritual sons of Adam, they too must be born again. This is why all of mankind who can trace themselves back to this one man named Adam, we see that we are all in Him. But before this, we've got to see to be born again, what does it mean? To go from just being under the lineage of Adam to now being under the lineage of Christ be born again into a new family, to be born again and to have a new creation, to be a new creation, to be a new creature, to have a new image and a new likeness, if you will. Now, as we look here, the opening verses here remind us that man is fallen, but God is fulfilling his promise of redemption, demonstrating man's great need of God's grace, but also the character of God to continuously be gracious to sinful man. If we remember correctly, God's justice could have ended everything in Genesis 3. Instead, here we are in chapter 5. And we've got seven generations until there's going to be a man who doesn't even taste death. Enoch. Notice, right? He walked with God. He walked with God in verse 24 and he was not for God took him. What we find though is in Genesis 3, sin enters in. When sin enters in, death enters in. So therefore, sin and death are imputed to all of mankind and everyone that is born is born with sin and death in their future, in their very nature. But what else do we find? That God in His patience and kindness and graciousness, it is allowing them to get back to the place where they will once more call upon His name. Why? Because all who call upon His name, He saves. All who call upon His name. What does it mean to call upon His name? To call upon His character. So what is your salvation and my salvation? When you call upon the name of the Lord, what did you call upon? His mercy, His grace, His kindness, His favor, His forgiveness. I didn't call upon His justice when I got saved. No. I called upon all those other good things that I wanted so much and needed so much. Because the Lord's justice had already been called upon at the cross when He poured out His justice upon His Son instead of me. But what we see here is as we enter into this genealogy, is that this is not something to be skipped over. This is something to show us that generation to generation to generation to generation to generation, generation, God is faithful to redeem and reconcile sinners who would be humble enough to call upon His name by faith. And all who call upon Him, He will in no wise cast out. All who come to Him, he will not send away. There is not a single soul that has ever prayed for the mercy of God and has not received it. There has never been a single soul that has gone to hell that has, that has prayed for the Lord to save. What we find in a genealogy like this is God's gracious character. When we say this, and, and, and we'll be done with this, raise your hand if you believe What 2 Timothy chapter 3 tells us, that all Scripture is given by God. All of it. Is all of it profitable? That's what it says, doesn't it? All of it for proof, for correction, for instruction, righteousness, right? That way we can reprove, rebuke, exhort by long-suffering doctrine, like Paul says in the next chapter. We believe that, don't we? Same with the genealogy. The next time you've got a whole chapter in front of you in your daily devotions or your daily reading time, I want you to read it to the glory of God. I want you to read it going, these were individuals that God cared for and knew. These were individuals that God extended His grace and His mercy to. And now, however many generations we are to where we are now, about 6,000 years into this whole, whole thing, look at God's kindness to us. And when we read a genealogy and get to this, and we see that God is faithful in desiring to save sinners. And He does it the same way He did it in Genesis 3, in Genesis 4, and today. You must call upon His name. Put your trust in who He is. Not just to be saved, but every day of your life. There's not a day that goes by saying of God that we don't need to call upon his name. Calling upon his name is not just to be saved. But calling upon his name is what will grow you. Calling upon his name is what will bring you into sweet fellowship with him. Calling upon his name is what will bring you to a place where you can greet joyfully a chapter of genealogy as you read his word. Call upon his name. Let us pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you for this time. grateful that as we come to such a place like this, we can see the great need to call upon you. And Lord, that's what we do now in this moment. Lord, we trust your faithfulness, your goodness, your kindness, your graciousness from generation to generation to save and redeem and reconcile sinners who would simply trust in you. Help us to do so tonight. I pray, God, that you would help us as we study your word to to do so joyfully. God, that you would reveal yourself to us, Lord, so that we might know you not just in our minds, but, Lord, to, to grow in faith and to grow in grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us do so tonight. As we go from this place, Lord, help us be used of You, and, Lord, to give our lives to You. And, God, we just want to thank You for this night. Uh, go before us now prepare the way. Prepare our hearts as well, Lord, for even this, uh, this Sunday. Prepare us for, for each moment of each day, Lord, to be used of You, to, to share our, our faith, to share Your Word with others. And, God, we just want to thank You for meeting with us and for giving us Your Word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, one of our